Good morning. It is good to see you. Good to have you here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagen, Boca Raton, or watching with us live streaming online now. So good to have you with us. I got to tell you, I am absolutely excited, pumped, stoked, use whatever word you want, about this, this time together today. Because whether you're, you know, been coming to church here forever, if this is your first time, even if you are not sure if you believe in God and the Bible and Jesus and all that, I'm so excited because what you're going to find today is the absolute practical truth of God's word that impacts every single one of us. And I'm especially excited for those of you who are younger, and when I say younger, I'm going to say like under 30. That's like, that's kids, you know, to me. Uh, because if you will take the wisdom that we talk about today in God's word, it will serve you well for the rest of your life. And someday you'll look back and say, thank you, Pastor Bob. <laughs> and if you're older, like over 30, <laughs> it'll serve you just as well. But you, you're, you're, a few years behind. Anyway, uh, I'm very excited about that. We're in this series right on the money. And this last week in our small group, uh, we're going through the, the, the sermon-based questions that Pastor Bill produced. And the first question talked about, you know, what was your response when you heard we were doing a short finance series? Was it, you know, oh, great, the church just wants my money. Or you know, I, don't, I don't need this. I've got it all put together, so I'll see you in a month. Or, oh, good, I could learn some things. Or other was another one. So when we discussed that in our small group, three people said, I, I checked other. And then they didn't expound on it. And so I said, well, what do you mean other? So I went around these three that said other. And the first lady, she said, well, it's January. You always talk about money in January. And then another one said, of course, it's first year, finance series. And the third one said, yeah, what they said. So apparently I'm predictable, <laughs> but at least I'm consistent. And so I thought maybe I would give you the why behind the what of the predictability on this, why I and, and many, many pastors actually do this frequently in, in uh, January, the start of the new year. A couple reasons. One is because in January, the, uh, the acute nature of consumer debt is right on the forefront of everyone's thinking. Usually that's when people have the greatest amount of credit card debt, having just come through Christmas, now they have to figure out how we're going to pay for all these gifts that we gave and those kind of things. The second reason is that in the beginning of a new year, people are open to making some changes in their life. You know, the whole New Year's resolution thing. And one of those areas in, in the er is in the area of financial world, because as you'll see, whoever surveys folks and finds out what the top 10 uh, New Year's resolutions are, always in the top five, you're going to find something about less debt, savings more, better financial decisions. And, and so it's a great time to just leverage those two realities in life and then take a look at what God's word has to say. And as I said last week, I am so glad that we have a heavenly father who loves us enough to give us principles, truths, wisdom on something as practical and everyday as our financial world. Last week, we looked at, at what Jesus had to say, not exhaustively, but we looked at some of the things that Jesus had to say about our money and material things and wealth and, and, and all this stuff. And it was interesting. Two of the things, uh, real quick, I'll just remind us about, is that one, he said that, that wealth can be deceitful, that there can be you know, something that you can believe about this that isn't true. And then he gives a strong warning when he said, watch out, be on your guard. Because of the insidious nature of this, the way it is, you might be think you're thinking you're doing things just right, exactly the way they should be done. And in the meantime, it's getting its grip on you. You're falling into, into greed. You're putting your trust and your value and your purpose and your meaning in all this stuff. And he says, just be aware. Even if you think you're doing what's right, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to destruction. So be aware of that. And so it's just like this caution flag of just be, you know, have your eyes open. 
The writer of, of Proverbs said this, the way of a fool seems right to him. Now, that's a little bit strong, but he's doing a contrast. The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. This applies to all kinds of areas of our life, and especially in this area of our financial world. And this is kind of setting the course for our day today, because I want us to learn from a fool and from a wise man, and I hope that we will be wise and listen to the advice of the wisdom and not fall into the, the trap of the fool. So we're going to look at, at both of those things. Here's the great deal with Solomon and, and these words and what we'll look at today is that the biblical principles that we will look at today have been tested and tried and they are true and people will swear by them for thousands of years. People have built their financial world around these principles and they have been grateful for it. It has indeed served them well. So as we get into this, I want to tell a story and I want us to learn the lesson of a fool first when we do this fool and wisdom, the lesson of a fool. And I want to tell you a story to start us off. If you've ever read the Gospels, you know that there are stories about Jesus, and there's two different kinds of stories. There are events that happen, there are true stories that Jesus had an encounter, and those are, are relayed in, in the Scripture. And then there are stories that Jesus makes up. They're called parables. They're not true stories, they're stories uh, that have a truth to them, and there may be some similarities in areas of life. Last week, we looked at one of each. Jesus had an actual encounter with this young man whose father had passed away, that whole deal. And then Jesus told this parable, told a story. But today, I want to tell you a story about a fool. It's a fool's story so we can learn from it. And I wish, I wish it was a parable. I wish it was a made-up story to illustrate a point, to have some truth that we could learn from. But it's an actual event story, and the names have not been changed because there's no one innocent in this story. And the reason I wish this was a made-up story, because the story of the fool that we are going to look at today is me. So I'm very excited <laughs> to tell you that. And it's a story that I've told before. In fact, the last time I told it was about four years ago. But I think it bears repeating not only so that you can learn from my foolish mistakes, but it also is a good reminder of me in my life. So you excited to hear my foolish story and learn from the fool in front of you? This takes us back, and I'm going to condense down. Uh, even last night I went really long on this. I'm going to try to condense down because it's over several years. But it was like late 80s, early 90s. Think MC Hammer singing, can't touch this. You know, parachute pants and neon and hockey hair. And oh, oh it's the greatest time of life. So late 80s, early 90s. I was at this church as a youth pastor receiving a modest salary. We were a small church at that point going through life. And I had this this dream vehicle it was like a almost reality dream vehicle not like a Porsche Carrera which was not a reality dream vehicle this was the one that like if I wait a few years they get old enough they devalued enough I might be able to afford one of these and it was a Jeep Cherokee I wanted one more than any other car and it was just out of my range in fact I saw a used one some of you have been around long enough remember when Roger Jobs was in the A-frame down on Samish went down there there was this used Jeep Cherokee and and I saw it and the the dealer guy comes out, the salesman comes out, and, and uh, he says, would you like to drive this? I said, how much is it? And he told me, I said, no, don't, I don't want to drive it. He said, well, then just sit in it. <laughs> he was the devil. And so anyway, sat in there, talked with him, and I knew I couldn't afford it, so I walked away, never drove that. But I kept looking, and I don't even know how I came across this. It must have been like, you know, in the newspaper, because this was before internet stuff. I found one in Issaquah. In the year that I wanted, 1985, in a price range that was 
pretty close to my price range, on the upper end, but I, I thought I could do this. So I called the guy and said, is this truly the year? Is this truly the miles, these options? And this is really the price you're asking? He said, yeah. And I said, and you still have it? He said, yeah. I said, would you hold it? I will drive down from Bellingham tonight. I would like to see this. He says, I'll do that. So went down, long story short, loved this car. I called my dad. He co-signed on a loan for me, and I bought my dream vehicle. Now, it was tight. It was a stretch in my budget, but I could make it. What I forgot was that now that it had... Um, uh, alone, I had to have full coverage insurance, so that jacked that up a little bit, which made it even tighter, but I was doing okay. I was making it, and I had a Jeep Cherokee. It was my dream vehicle. Now, I had a credit card, but that credit card had a zero balance, and this was the vow that we had made. Nothing will go on that credit card unless of a dire, dire emergency, and we lived by that. That credit card just stayed in the wallet, never did anything. I also had this dream snowboard because Burton came out with these two new lines of snowboards. They came out with the M series, which was a carving board, and then the free series, which was an all mountain board. And they had a free six. And I thought, that's my board. That's the board I want more than anything. And I knew I couldn't afford it. But in the spring of the year, they start closing out and moving out all the inventory and they drop the price down. I went to what at that time was Fairhaven Bike and Ski, and they had a free five, and it was almost like affordable, but it was a free five. I needed a free six. A free five was too short. So then I started calling around ski and snowboard shops, bike shops. Again, I don't know how I found it, but there was a bike shop in Lake Oswego or Beaverton, Oregon that had one on closeout, and I called them. I said, you still have it? He said, we have one left. I said, would you hold it? Because my mom lives in Vancouver and I should go see my mother. It's the duty of a son to go down in the Portland area anyway. And I decided this would be the only thing I would put on the credit card. Not because it was an emergency, but because it was my dream. And there was one left in the Northwest and it was a price. And so I put that on the credit card. And then I found out that I could make minimum monthly payments on this credit card. And it really wasn't that bad. It's like, okay, I, I can handle that. And since I wasn't paying the credit card off, now that that door was open, it was easier to walk in a little bit. Because there was this leather jacket. <laughs> that was really, really nice when I bought that. Remember, this is late 80s. There were these bleach-blasted jeans and this pair of Bo Jackson cross-trainer Nikes. I own them all now because I could make the minimum payment. Well, and then there were some movie tickets and then a few nights out at Red Robin and, and, and that credit card balance. But I was still making the monthly payment, the minimum monthly payment. And then the unthinkable happened. In my dream card, there was a mechanical issue. I had to get it fixed and I had to pay for it. And I put that on the card because this was finally an emergency and it pretty well maxed out the card. Now I'm living on some pretty thin ice, but I'm making everything work so far. At the time, uh, my wife and I were, we were uh, young newlyweds, and we were hanging out with some other young married couples, and they all made more money than we did, and we tried to kind of hang in their circle. There were some things. We couldn't vacation like they did, and we couldn't do, you know, live like they did exactly, but there were some things we tried, and it was a stretch, and it just was really, really tight. And then bills kind of started stacking up a little bit. And bills started getting a little bit later, and I, and I got to this place where I would, I would take these bills and I would stack them up around which ones are the most overdue and pay those first. And, I, and I'd pay them down, and I got paid every other Thursday, and I had kind of this, this game I made up. None of you have ever even heard of this. 
but I would pay bills on Tuesday and mail them with a stamp, old school, knowing that they wouldn't get to the place and then be cleared until after Thursday because I got paid on Thursday and I could get my check in the bank before the check's cleared. I, don't ever try this. I know you've never even thought of such a thing, but I played this, this timing game hoping that the U.S. Postal Service would not get effective uh, and it's, 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 that they would slowly get this to the, to the deal. And so I was going along with that, and this is how I lived, and I was building this, this financial house of cards that was... There was zero room for error. One little catastrophe, one little issue, and it all will collapse. And then in the matter of six months, there were three events that changed my world. My wife at the time and I went out to dinner with Mark and Denise Moffitt, young couple at the time. Mark and Denise were part of our church. We went out to a restaurant uh, in downtown Bellingham, had a nice dinner. We went to each pay for our bill. I went to pay for our bill, and the credit card was denied. And I didn't have the money in my wallet. And I looked at Mark and Denise. It was one of the most embarrassing, humiliating things in my life. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, our, our credit card doesn't seem to be working. Could you cover our dinner? And when we get back to the house, I'll write you a check. Not that the check was going to do anything, but it would buy me some time and at least get me out of the restaurant. And so it was a very humiliating time with Mark and Denise. And that was just like, oh, I can't believe that. And then... That spring, at the end of the season, I went uh, snowboarding with my friend Tim Dolan. We went to Cypress Bowl up in Canada. Last run of the day, I hit this jump and just landed it wrong and really tweaked my leg and my ankle. And it hurt really bad. And by the time I got back to Bellingham, I couldn't walk on my leg. And I thought, I need to go to the ER. And our insurance at the time was such that we had to pay up front and then the insurance company would reimburse. I don't even remember what it was. I do remember Richard James was my insurance agent at the time, a friend as well. And I called him and said, Richard, I really tweaked my, my ankle, my leg. I need to go to the hospital. What do I do? And he said, just pay the, the couple hundred dollars up front and then submit it. You'll get it reimbursed. And I said, well, how do I do that? He said, well, I don't know. Write a check. Get it from your savings. Put it on your credit card. And I said, thank you. And I hung up. Because... I had no room on my credit card, I had no savings, and there was no margin in my checkbook. I didn't go to the ER, I just put ice on it and limped. And then, this whole game that I had been putting together, that I had been kind of keeping everything up in the air, all of a sudden, there was a miscalculation, there was a, a check that cleared early, and the whole thing started collapsing in. Because when this check came in and there wasn't the money in the bank, then the bank hit me with this, this late penalty, which took my balance even lower. And these checks kept now started coming in. And, the, and each one, as they were getting sent back, I was getting late fees from these companies. And my bank was hitting me with these overdraft fees. And it just got deeper and deeper. And every time one would bounce, the, the, my balance would go even smaller. And it just was collapsing. And there was not a thing I could do. It was all caving in around me. And I had prided myself from the time I graduated from college, I had prided myself that I had taken care of all my own stuff and I had to make a phone call to my dad. And for me, this was just, this was the, almost the worst. And I said, Dad, I'm embarrassed about this, but I've dug myself into a financial hole and I can't get my head above. I'm not asking you to pay anything off. I just got to get my head, it was just spiraling in this downward debt snowball going the wrong direction. I said, I just got to get my head above water. Can you help me out? And he said, how much do you need? And I told him, I said, it's not going to pay everything off. It'll just get me enough. And I said, and dad, I don't know when I'll ever be able to pay you back. And he helped me out. Those three things, that dinner, that snowboard, uh, not being able to go to the ER, and that phone call to my dad. And I said, no more. 
I cannot, I will not live like this. The reality is we had had a power turned off because I didn't get the bill in on time. The bank was hitting me with these. Not only did I not want to live this way, the bank wasn't going to let me live. The Moffats didn't want me to live this way, messing up their world. And it didn't happen overnight. It was subtle. And debt and, and financial ruin does it. it. It creeps up on you like a bad pair of underwear. And I had given myself such a financial wedgie, I couldn't see straight. I don't want that for anybody. See, I thought I had it all figured out. I thought it was right. I thought it was, I had it all put together. And Solomon writes these words. He who trusts him in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. I was not walking in wisdom. I was living a very foolish life. And I don't want that story repeated with any of you. I definitely don't want it repeated in my life. And that began to change some things for me. And that's why I'm so excited about our time today. Because some of the verses that we will look at today have changed my life. And I believe that they will change yours if you will walk in the way of wisdom as well. And some of you right now are saying, well, Bob, I'm not nearly as foolish as you were. Good. I wish I would have been more like you when I was that age. And some of you say, well, I'm not taking your advice. Fine, don't. But remember that first verse said, the wise listen to advice. So I'm asking you to listen to advice, but not mine. Let's listen to the advice, the advice of the wealthiest and the wisest person who has ever lived. Let's take a look at what someone who has a lot, who has it right on the money, what they might say, someone who has great wisdom, who didn't just get lucky, didn't just get a big inheritance, but they really got this thing figured out. So we're going to look at the words of Solomon. And like last week, we only looked at the words of Jesus. In our time together today, we are only going to look at the words of Solomon. We're going to look at what he says. Now let me, let me tell you a little bit. Some of you are familiar with Solomon. Let me give you a little backdrop of why I say he's the wealthiest and the wisest. In Chronicles, it says this. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. That's how much he has. He's like, silver? Yeah, that's for picnics. That's for, you know, put that in the recycle bin. We, we don't worry about silver. It's gold. I and mean, that's how much money he had. He was very, very wealthy. A few verses later, it says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings of the earth. And all the kings of the earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom, and here's the beautiful piece, that God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold and robes and weapons and spices and horses and mules. They just brought all these gifts. Here's the good news for us, is that a lot of this wisdom that God had put in his heart, he recorded in a book called Proverbs in, in the Old Testament. And here's the great thing. While people came from all over the earth and paid him for his wisdom, we get it for free. So that's a cool thing, and we get to look into this. In this book of Proverbs that he wrote, there's wisdom on all kinds of areas of life, and a lot of it has to do with our financial world. And he knew what he was talking about on this. Now, we, again, we will not be able to cover it exhaustively. We'll just kind of touch down on a few things. The interesting thing about Solomon and his wisdom while God put this wisdom in his heart, it's almost as if he had this ability to just, to just look at things and gain insights from them. Kind of a Sherlock kind of a deal. Where you just look at someone or something and he put together some deductions, draw a conclusion, and have this insight that may be on the one hand just obvious 
when you read it, but it's like, well, how did he come up with that? Very, very practical. These observations that we have with these principles and these truths of wisdom. So I want us to look at, at one of his observations. And he just kind of like states, this is what I've discovered about life and about people and about the financial world. And this observation that we're going to look at could, can kind of be, and this will be their, our theme for today, is the observation is it's about more and less. In fact, that's the title of today's sermon is More and Less, because I want to look at this. The whole thing really is based on this more and less. And before we look at his observation, I'll tell you what I want for us in this room with this whole concept of more and less. I want for us more savings and less debt. Now, the, the savings debt ratio, I told you I wasn't going to bore you with statistics, but the savings debt ratio in the United States is horrific. I want that changed. I want us to have more savings and less debt. With that, I want us to have more margin and less dearth. Now, some of you are saying, I don't even know what dearth is. That's why it's a good thing you came to church. I didn't either until this week, but I thought it was a cool word. It means lack, scarcity. We need to have margin where there's breathing room, where there's some surplus, where there's a little extra, instead of always being in this lack and scarcity like I lived those years ago. And if we will have more savings and margin and less debt and dearth, then it will produce something else in our life. We will then have more peace and less pressure. In the financial world of our life, there won't be all this struggle, as much pressure, and to a certain degree, follow me on this one, to a certain degree, more security and less stress. Now, ultimately, our security is not in money. Ultimately, our security is in Jesus Christ. Okay? I just want to make sure you're really clear that that's what I, I, I believe that, I teach that. But in our financial world, if we have more of this, we'll have some financial security. And with all of that, what will result is that we will have, you know, options and less limitations. Like when there's some things that we could do, when there's maybe uh, an opportunity for us, we can actually do it. When there's a prompting from the Holy Spirit to be generous, to be able to help out in a need, to help out an organization, to, to support a ministry or someone that's going on a mission field, we would have those options instead of the limitations. And ultimately that we would have freedom and not restriction. That, that this is how we would live our life. Just imagine if all of us had more of this and less of this, how great it would be. See, that's the goal that I want for us, and that's what we're talking about today. In all this, we would have more generosity and less greed if we had this, hopefully. You know, there'd be this heart of gratitude and, and, and less of this, you know, kind of, I can't get out of here. So with this being our goal, let's look at this observation that Solomon made. And again, at, at first glance, you might think, well, duh, this is obvious, but let's kind of look into it. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20 says, in the house of the wise, there's our word again, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours or consumes all he has. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Now in this more and less, he's talking about more and less, and we're wanting to be more wise and less foolish. Notice he doesn't say in the house of the rich or in the house of the wealthy. He says, in the house of the wise, and that can be every single one of us. In the house of the wise, he said, the wise person arranges their life and their financial world in, in a way that, that there's, there's extra, that there is margin, that there is some breathing room. So that when some unexpected bill comes along, it doesn't destroy them financially. 
When some emergency comes along, they're able to handle it. When that opportunity is there, they can say, we'll take advantage of that. When God prompts their heart, they don't just say, oh, boy, we really wish we could give. We just can't this year. They can say, you know what? We can because we've done this. So you wonder, how does a wise person do this? How does a wise person have some extra, some surplus in their house? Either that wise person makes more than they can spend or they spend less than they make. Either way, it's more or less. They either make more than they can spend, so they have extra, or they spend less than they make, and so they have extra. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then he contrasts that, the wise with the foolish. Then he says, but, uh, you know, the foolish man devours, consumes, uses all he has. I think we ought to rewrite that verse and have it say, but an American devours all he has because that's the american way the amount of americans and many of you in this room who live paycheck to paycheck we just use it all that's why we we make money to spend it that's the way it is and here's what's even crazier about the american way because we're so brilliant because we devour all we have we spend all we've got we say but i'm not done spending so we come up with these great ideas don't let that stop you take out a loan Get a line of credit, buy it on time, get into a lease so you can devour all you have and keep going. What a great idea. The beauty of credit cards. Don't just get one. Get a Visa, get an American Express, get a Discover. Shoot while you're at it, get a Kohl's card and a Macy's and a Victoria's Secret just for Valentine's Day. And just have these credit cards, just get it. Here's the crazy thing. This is the only statistics I'll I'll give you to maybe, um, maybe a couple more. From the U.S. uh, Census Bureau and the Federal Reserve, they talk about the fact that people who keep an outstanding balance on their credit card usually have credit cards. And they usually, and I'm, I'm saying they, I'm using some generalities because this applies to some of you, but not all of you. Generally, in the United States, those who have an outstanding balance on their credit cards have a great deal on multiple cards. And those who do keep an outstanding balance in America, the average outstanding balance of those cards uh, is $16,048, which spread out over, you know, three, four, five, six cards may not feel like that big of a deal. Here's the crazy thing. Regardless of what your credit card offered you as your, your, your incentive to come to their company or that, you know, that first year with 0% uh, interest or whatever it might have been, waiving the fees the first time. After that first year, things change, and of these credit cards in America today, the average interest rate is 16.1% on credit cards. Now, some of you are going to push back right now and say, that is not true with my credit cards. It shows me every week, every month, I mean, on my balance, it says my interest rate is 1.4%. That's for that month. But you do that for 12 months, you know what you get? 16%. It's a little bit sneaky when it shows 1.4% because the annual percentage rate is 16. That's crazy. That's highway robbery. And we willingly walk into it. We say, I want that. So if you were to see this today and say, you know what, maybe that's not the wisest thing. Okay, I'll tell you what, no more 
I'm not putting anything else on my credit cards. I'm going to pay them off. I can't pay off 16000 but I'm going to make minimum monthly payments. If this is the case for you and you say, from here on out, not another penny goes on these cards. I'm going to pay them off minimum monthly payments. On a minimum monthly payment at this interest rate, it will take you 14 years. At that point, you will have been paying for something that you threw away 12 years before. You're paying for stuff that's in the landfill. You're paying for stuff you don't even remember what happened. You don't even remember what it was. And if you were to take this scenario, at the end of those 14 years, you would have paid over $40,000 in interest alone. Boy, aren't we brilliant as Americans. You just look at this and say, how about that? What's in your wallet? What a great idea. It, you don't have to answer this out loud. Is this wise or is this foolish? And yet we do this. See, I am all for plastic surgery when it comes to cutting up credit cards. And we walk right into this. So Solomon says this, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant, is slave to the lender. For those 14 years, those companies own you, at least a portion of you. You're obligated. So you look at all this and you think, well, I don't want to be foolish and I don't want to live that way and I, I, I want to be wise. So you come up with a solution. I just need to make more money. I just need more money. That, that's it. That would be the solution. I mean, because I did say one of the ways that this could happen is that you make more than you spend, and I suppose that could be the case. But honestly, honestly, it's not about income. It's not about income. Let's, let's pick on a group, a segment of our society that by and large is not represented by us. That way we don't have to feel bad. Let's do that. Let's point the fingers at someone else, okay? Um, let's talk about professional athletes. We watch them, we're excited for them in these huge contracts they get. My wife and I uh, love watching uh, ESPN's 30 for 30 films, these short films, they're, they're fantastic. There was one that came out a few years ago called Broke, and it did the, uh, the whole area of financial thing with professional athletes. And in this uh, 30 for 30 film, they quoted some statistics that came from Sports Illustrated. So I'm just so, so, uh, stating the source. And this is what Sports Illustrated said. By the time they had been retired for two years, two years, by the time they'd been retired for two years, 78% of former NFL players have gone bankrupt or under financial stress. 78%, two years after they're done with their, their career. Now, we can say this, and, and we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We can just say part of the problem is that professional football players are underpaid. They just need to make more. Why do you laugh? Have you ever seen what baseball players and basketball players get made, get paid? I mean, it's crazy. In the NBA, this year in the league, league-wide, the average salary of a basketball player in the NBA is $5 million a year. The football players don't even come close to that. All they get is concussions. And so, so we'll just kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, okay, they would have done better if they would have made more. Like the basketball players. Sports Illustrated quotes this. Within five years of retirement... 60% of former NBA players are broke, even though they made more money. So it's not just about income. And we can point the fingers all the time, but you got to stop and say, wait, 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 wait. It's not just for those who make millions of dollars. That's the case for us. 
in the, in the, the ESPN uh, film, they talked about these lavish lifestyles that they would pursue. Guy wants $35,000 earrings. Are you serious? And just living this way. Okay, just take a few zeros off. Are we really any different? We chase a lifestyle. We want a standard of living that's, that's a little beyond what we can do to kind of keep up with the Joneses, those kind of things. How about this when Solomon says, one man pretends, and instead of using the word pretends, let's kind of change it out with appears. One man appears to be rich, yet has nothing. Another appears to be poor, yet has great wealth. That it's, it's not just how much you have, but it's, it's what you're trying to, trying to project that you have. This lifestyle you're trying to live that's beyond your means, that you shouldn't be trying to, you, you're, you're living it on credit, you're going after these things, and instead of, your, instead of your lifestyle, you know, chasing your income, now your income is chasing your lifestyle. I've got to make more to keep up with where I am. And that's all of us, no matter where we are on the financial scale here, on, on, the, on the income. And as Jesus said, we looked at last week, it's a deeper issue than just income. It's somewhere down here. This is interesting. Solomon, being the wealthiest, very observant, has great insights. He wrote these words, and I wonder if when he wrote these, it wasn't that he was observing everybody else. I wonder if it was because he was looking in the mirror. He wrote this in Ecclesiastes. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. I wonder if he wasn't pointing the finger. He was just saying, this is the story of my life. I've got this insane amount of wealth, and I still want more. There's no one on the planet that's more wealthy than me, and I'm still not satisfied. This is just that human nature. See, some of you are convinced if you would just hit the lottery, your world would be wonderful. Shall I quote you those statistics? 70% of the people that hit the lotto big are broke today. And the divorce rate amongst those who hit the lotto big are four times greater than the national average. There you go. That's a real marriage saver. You see, honestly, the last thing I would want for you is to win the lottery. You know what I really want for you? I want for you to gain wisdom. I want for you to be able to distinguish between needs and wants. I want you to learn the secret of contentment. That makes all the difference. All right, whose face graces the front of a $100 bill? Out loud. What, you guys never had one? <laughs> I was giving them away last week. Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin. Not a president, one of the few that's not a president. You start wondering, why does he get to be on the $100 bill? I don't know why, but here's an interesting thing. Benjamin Franklin said this. Contentment, contentment will make a poor man rich and discontentment will make a rich man poor. See, it's not, it's not about income. It's about wisdom. Here's another thing. It's not by accident. You know, to have this in, in the house of the wise or, or these extra stores, it's not by accident. It's not just, well, they got lucky. And, and I will say this. While it is true, some of you make more than others. And while it is true, some of you are better with numbers than others. And while it is true... Some of you just deal with financial things better. You have a clearer understanding of it. It is true that some of you are more disciplined than others. It is true that some of you have had better models and examples in your parents than others. 
And some of you were taught things in, in, you know, in your homes or in a mentor, and others are not. Here's the truth, regardless of where you are on that. We can all grow in wisdom. We can all become wiser in this area, regardless of how we are brought up. And, and, and some of you desperately wish your parents would have set a better example for you or would have taught you the right way. And now you've got all these habits that you're trying to break and, and all this destruction that happens. But it's not by accident. It's not just getting lucky. There's a very intentional piece of this. And Solomon writes, the plans, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. That there's some intentional plans here and there's a diligence in, in seeing these plans out, going through with them. I ran into a young man yesterday. He's a young, uh, young married with young family. And he's bringing his whole family, his whole, excuse me, his whole small group to the Financial Peace University. Everyone in this small group are either engaged, newlyweds, or young families. And, um, and he's bringing them all to the Financial Peace University. So I was talking to him about that. And I was telling him what Scott Hume, who uh, teaches one of the weeks in our pre-marriage class on finances, he said, I wish every young couple that's getting married would somehow be required to go through something like financial peace just because it's such a, a tension area in marriage. So I was talking to this, this young man who's taking this small group through and he said, and I was telling him that, what Scott said. And he says, you know, I just, I look back on our marriage early on. And uh, he said, you know, we just, and these were his words, we squandered so much money. Not in the, you know, riotous, ungodly living of the prodigal son, just in frivolous life stuff. And he said, because we didn't have a plan. We just spent it as it came. We just spent it and spent it. And he said, I look back and we squandered so much money. It's the plans of the diligent that will get us ahead. Now, I'm a simple guy. I am a really simple guy. And I like simple plans that I can remember and that I can follow. And some of you are not. You like spreadsheets and Excel and all this charts and graphs. Great. Here's the simple plan that we've taught here that I think is just a great, great thing to base a plan on. It's the 10-10-80 plan. You know, it's the give-save-live plan. It's biblical, it's simple, it's, it's phenomenal, it's revolutionary. And in that, that 10, the first 10, is honoring God with a full tithe. Just saying, God, I'm going to invite you into my finances, I'm going to honor you, I'm going to recognize it all belongs to you, it all came from you, and I'm going to ask you to be a part of this, I'm going to honor you with a full tithe. That second 10% is paying yourself. I'm going to set this 10% aside, I'm going to save it, uh, we need to have some margin in case of an emergency where this isn't for spending, this isn't you know, being set aside to, to you know, just save up enough to buy, this is, we're saving, and now we're going to choose diligently a plan to live on 80%. It's very un-American, this 10-10-80 plan, because it means living below your means, not within your means, below your means. And you can say, well, yeah, yeah, that, that all sounds good, and I agree with that, and we can discuss that. But Solomon would say this, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. If you just agree with it, you just discuss it, you just talk about it, it's not going to change anything. It's when you diligently put that plan into, into action. And last week when I mentioned we were opening up uh, for the first time this Financial Peace University and uh, that registration would start on Monday morning, we had limited spots available. When I came in on Tuesday... I said, did we get anyone to sign up? And they said, it filled up and we have a waiting list. And I said, well, then let's, let's accommodate them. So we went into the recruiting mode, getting people to lead these small groups. 
between Skagit and Bellingham, we have over 160 people signed up uh, to take Financial Peace University. Now listen, for those of you who do, I just want to give a shout out, commend you for doing that. But if you just go through and talk about it, you just go through that, listen and discuss, it won't change anything. It's the plans of the diligent. It's when you put it into practice and you work at it. So this whole more or less thing, the truth is that less leads to more. Less leads to more. Less debt, less credit cards, less uh, discontentment, less comparing, less keeping up with the Joneses, less of that. And more of that peace and that margin. Can I just throw in one more little caveat? I've already referred to this a little bit. Those of you who are parents, one of the greatest gifts you can give to your children is to model and teach godly financial principles. It's one of the best gifts you can You say, well, we don't want to bother our kids with our finances. You don't have to get into all the details. But do they see that you avoid debt? Do they see that you honor God? Do they hear about the difference between needs and wants? Do they understand contentment? Do, you ever, do they ever hear you say, this is why we don't do this because of this? I mean, some of you wish your parents would have done that for you. Do that for your kids. What a gift that they will have. Now, they may or may not follow it, but at least you've set them up for a life of wisdom in this area. All right. This verse says, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. It's to work the plan. I wonder, Solomon, he's on his throne, massive throne, overlaid with gold, inset with ivory, lions on each side, these steps. He's sitting on his throne. And I wonder if he looks down and he notices something. Kind of quiet, unassuming, but diligent. Doesn't think much of it. And then the next day he notices it again. And the way his mind works, he observes. And he makes some deductions and he draws some conclusions. And maybe he watches this week after week, month after month, and even year after year. And then he thinks, you know, there are going to be some people that say, I'm not listening to Bob's advice. I'm not as foolish as him. And there might be some people who say, I'm not going to listen to Solomon's advice. He's in a league completely out of mine. Maybe they'll listen to this advice. And maybe what he's observed over the years, he says, I'm going to put this one in and see how it goes. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. I love that word. Consider its ways and be wise. He's been watching these ants over the years. He says, you think you're so smart. You can learn a thing or two from this little critter. There's some great wisdom to be gained from the ant. So one of the things he's observed is that it has no commander, no overseer, no ruler. There's no boss cracking the whip down here. There's no parent making them. There's no external motivation for these little guys. They're on their own here. They have the wherewithal in their own thinking somehow. No one is making them do this. Yet, it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. It has a plan. And it works the plan. It doesn't happen overnight. But these ants just diligently, with hard work, plan and prepare and they're not nearly as stressed or strapped as we are. So he says, think about that. 
And then he asks this question. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? There he goes again. When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. He said the outcome is predictable. Learn from these little guys. Follow their example. Do this on your own. Don't wait for some external motivation to kind of spur you on. Get a plan and work that plan. And you can be as free as an ant. How great would that be? That we would have that kind of freedom. Less restrictions. More options. Less limitations. You know, more security in the financial world. Less stress. More peace. Less pressure. More margin. Less dearth. More savings. Less debt. That's what I want for you. So I told you my story, my dark financial story. I was 26, 27 years old. That was 26 or 27 years ago. I'm twice as old now. I've lived twice as long. And I want to tell you, when I hit that rock bottom part for me, that was all it took. I turned things around. And I want to tell you another story. My story. And I don't do this in any way to puff me up. I just want you to know, you saw where I was. You saw how foolish I was. Let me tell you what applying God's word has done. That now I'm twice as old. I'm 53 and a half. My wife and I honor God with the full tithe, with all money that comes into us. We, every time I get a paycheck, we put money into savings, we put money into retirement, we live this plan. We keep a zero balance on our credit cards. Now listen, some of you, I'm going to tell you how we live. I'm, you say, well, I can't do it. I'm just telling you how we live. We use our credit cards, but we pay it off every month. We have not paid a penny of credit card interest in years. Because we just saw that, that, and we just said, that's just stupid money. That's just throwing money away. So we keep a zero balance on our credit cards. We made a decision years ago that we would pay cash for cars. We wouldn't do payments. When I bought that Jeep Cherokee in, in 88 or whatever it was, that was the last time I made payments on a card. Ever since then, we've been committed to paying cash for cars. We buy used cars. We don't buy brand new cars. We let them devalue a little bit, depreciate a little bit. But we buy used cars, we pay cash. Eight years ago this month, I bought a car that was new to me. It was a used car. And I'm a creature of habit. I park in the same parking spot all the time. And this new vehicle I bought was an FJ7, uh, FJ Cruiser. And, and it, I mean, it is like blue. And so it was in my parking spot. And, and the first week I bought it, I parked in my parking spot. And someone came into church. I'm kidding you not. Came up to me and said, looks like you got a new vehicle. I said, yes, I did. And he said, did you pay cash for it? And I thought, the unmitigated audacity. <laughs> Who has the huevos to come to church and ask their pastor that kind of a question? And I looked him right in the eyes and I said, yes, I did. He said, well, I'm glad because you tell us you always pay cash for cars. <laughs> I'm thankful for the accountability. There's a way that we do that. We drive cars longer than maybe some of you do, and that's our choice. Clark Howard says, we tire out on cars before cars tire out. And so we drive cars. I bought that one eight years ago. 
I just put new tires on it because I'm going to drive it for a few more years. And during that time, I make payments to myself, not to some car company, not to some bank. Here's the truth, and I don't say this in a braggadocious way. I'm just saying this can happen. My next car is already paid for because for the last eight years, I've been making payments to myself into a savings account. That's just how we choose to live. With that, we have margin in our life. So when unexpected bills come, we're not excited about it. When the car breaks down or when something happens, we're not excited about that. But it doesn't stress us out. It doesn't throw our whole financial world into a, a chaos. And when some opportunities come, we get to decide if we want to do Our bank account doesn't decide. We decide if we want to do that. And it gives us the opportunity to sponsor children, to help out with things like Rebound or Engedi or crisis pregnancy clinic if God prompts us that way. We've just chosen to live well below our means and we don't try to keep up with anybody, Joneses or not. You win. We're not playing the game. We live our life. You see this verse? In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. I've lived on both sides of this verse. I've lived here and I never want to live here again. I don't want any of you to ever live here. And over the last 27 years, I've been learning wisdom. And I've been living this place. And I tell you what, I wouldn't trade it at all. See, it's more or less. More wisdom, less foolishness. It's not about more income, it's not by accident, it's a plan, it's diligence. It's working. It's understanding wants and needs. It's growing in contentment. It's honoring God. It's saying no so you can say yes. What if? What if we were all more wise and less foolish? Here's a challenge for you. And I, oh, please know my heart. I don't want to start any fights in your marriage. I really don't. This may happen, but I, it's not my desire. My challenge for you is if you're married that as a couple you would discuss where is it that we can become more wise and where is it that we can be a little less foolish? What are some things that we can do? And if you're not married, maybe just spend some time alone or talk with a trusted friend. Just look at your own life and say, how is it that I could live wise and not foolish? Have more and not less. Truth of God's word, so practical, so wise. Every single one of us can apply it. Stand as we close in prayer. As you're standing, just want to remind you this Wednesday that we have the refuge in this room. We'd love to have you come, spend some time, extended worship, communion, a, a brief, uh, a brief uh, message from the Word of God. Love to have you here on Wednesday night. Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you give us throughout your Word, but the truth and the wisdom that you gave to Solomon. And I pray that we, we would grow in our wisdom and we would apply these things to our lives and to our financial world. And we would honor you. And God, that we would experience the life that you designed us to live. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a great afternoon. You're out of here. We'll see you.